Hello and welcome back once again to another Coffee and Heroes podcast. Time now for one of our creator interviews and I'm very excited about today's guest. It can't be easy changing gears in this franchise-driven creative world we live in now, having that guaranteed paycheck for playing in someone else's sandbox and getting to leave your mark on it. But our guest today has done exactly that and she is off to a flying start. Having cut her teeth under the Power Rangers branding, serving as the director of Power Rangers development and production at All Spark Pictures, she has taken the leap into creating her own worlds instead of just keeping pre-existing ones going. She has served as director, writer and even voice actor in the Power Rangers Hyperforce world, but now it's time to make her mark in the comic industry on her own terms. And having read issue one of her upcoming book, which she was so gracious to send my way before this interview, it's clear she is here to stay. So that title is Dead Lucky, from Image Comics no less, due out on August 3rd and available at all good comic stores. And that creator is Melissa Flores. Welcome to the Coffee and Heroes podcast. How are you on this fine day? I am great. Thank you so much for having me. That was an amazing intro. I like felt very chuffed. <laughs> I, I get complimented often for my for my intro, so I'm I'm glad. I just like to massage the ego of the talent first. You know, it sets off for a much more uh, fun and laid back conversation. You won't have me complaining at all. That was very nice. <laughs> well, I mean, first of all, I should ask: Do you prefer Melissa or Misty, or is that just a cool Twitter handle? Um, you know, it doesn't matter either way. I'm used to Melissa, but because so many people call me Misty now because that's my Twitter handle, I respond to it too. So either one works. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. I mean, it it would appear you've been conquering the entertainment world sort of one industry at a time. I mean, you've worked in television, feature films, gaming and publishing. You You must have had some great experiences over the last decade, I would say. Yeah, it's been fun. It's definitely allowed me to keep my option open in terms of what is good content and definitely allows me to really explore every bit of content possible, which I think has made me feel more successful as a writer, that I'm not limiting myself to one space, that I'm really just enjoying creating content and then just whatever the medium it has it happens to be, I just, I get to do it and that's what makes me happy. So why are you entering the world of comics and, and why now? Did it just feel like the time was right? Yeah, it was uh, the time was right and the opportunity was there. I didn't grow up with comics. I love comics now and I've loved comics for years now, but I was one of three girls in a house of uh, my dad was an immigrant from Mexico and my mom was a Chicana from Texas and both amazing parents, very lucky to have them, but it wasn't the kind of environment that would just go and buy me comic books. I didn't really have access to them until maybe I was older and I played the video game Injustice by DC. And so I read read the comic book Injustice with Tom Taylor and I just fell in love. I fell in love with the medium and the stories and I just kept buying comic books after that. And then my true boot camp introduction to comic books came with Power Rangers when Boom Studios licensed the Power Ranger comic books and started creating their own with Kyle Higgins and Ryan Parrott. And that's when I truly, really got to see how the comics are made and really appreciate the artists, the artists that work so hard with them. And um, it just made me really appreciate the medium because it's one of those few where there, you don't really have to worry about a budget in terms of what can be made and what can be done. You're really only limited by the imagination of the artist and yourself. And I think that's very cool. And it's one of the few spaces where if you want to tell a story and you can get a publisher that believes in you, that's all you need to tell it. And I think that's very cool. And I think the 
fans of comic books are just so interesting and fun and they're looking for different ways to explore a good story. And I think that's very unique as opposed to like a television series or a, or a movie where it feels much more passive than a comic book where you actively have to switch the pages and read the books and wait every month for that work to be done for that story to be told. It's very cool. It's very unique. And I'm thrilled that I get to be a part of it. And Kyle Higgins is the one that gave me the opportunity to pitch image. And I'm very glad that I did. I mean, I love that, that it was a computer game that got you into comics rather than the other way yeah. around, you know, which you would often see. And, and Injustice, you know, great choice. We we have this thing in store where we always say to, you know, our customers that it's better to follow creators rather than characters. Because if you find a style of writing or a style of art that you enjoy, it's best to check out their other works. And Tom Taylor is very, very high on our list. You know, whether it's nightmare. Oh, he's amazing. His, his stuff's incredible. So it's um so it's wonderful to hear that he was, you know, mostly responsible for getting into comics. That's really, really cool. Yeah, and amazingly nice guy too, which is great. Yeah, and he's just brilliant at everything he does. An interesting story on on Tom, just as a very quick diversion, but we have this thing uh, over in the UK called Fantasy Premier League. It's a football Premier League sort of competition. Everyone picks their own team. And Tom Taylor entered our league two years ago. Mm. and he won it and we put up a prize of a hundred pound voucher for whoever won it so i i sort of joked to him saying no obviously tom you have to come and pick this up in store you know your prize obviously being australian there was it was the middle of lockdown as well so there was no way he was coming over but he's such a nice guy he basically said take that voucher get everyone in the league a comic on me if i owe you any money just let me know so yeah thoroughly thoroughly nice guy as well as a talented talented guy as well you know so but yeah you'd mentioned there your your friendship you know that came through boom studios through kyle higgins and ram parrot uh, can you talk about that a little bit how you guys got started and got friendly and, and obviously creatively intertwined i should say absolutely so my job at power rangers was basically director of power rangers development and production and all that really meant was it was the job of my team uh, myself included my boss and everybody else on the team to Take a look at the stories told in Power Rangers, whatever medium it might be, be it television series, feature films, publishing, video games, etc. And make sure, one, that it was the best story it could possibly be for Power Rangers, for whatever it was meant to be, for whatever market. And two, that it fit the lore in the franchise. And three, that it made sense with whatever else was going on for the marketing team, for the franchise team, for business affairs, for publishing everything. So it was just making sure that there was synergy throughout all the products. And because of that, I was very lucky. I got to be a big part of the creative team at Saban Brands and then at Hasbro, who worked directly with the editorial team at Boom Studios, getting these books out. And so we would give notes on everything they did and that sort of thing. And Kyle was the one who came up with the initial take for Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the debut series. And I was always very impressed with him. He was always incredibly smart, uh, challenged, uh, wanted to do really ambitious things with the medium and with Power Rangers. And to our detriment, I think we had a hard time wrapping our heads around it at times. But uh, he pushed us and always had a good attitude about it, even when we said no. Uh, and through that, uh, we started to, uh, I think, appreciate each other. And I'm one of those producers that really likes to get to know the artists 
that work on these projects because I feel like if I get to know them and where they come from, it allows me to be a better producer because I get to know what they're fighting for and how and how I can help them do that and still meet the challenges or the um, guidelines that we have. And so Kyle and I uh, met a couple times at cons for breakfast or lunch or uh, and or for just lunches, regular lunches throughout the week, just so I could get to know them and talk to them. And he was very friendly and great guy. And I think over the years, we just started to appreciate each other's sensibilities. And uh, we started working together more and more. He worked on the Shattered Grid Pro. He directed the Shattered Grid promo film all on his own. He did that with Jason David Frank. And he, we were just perfectly involved. He asked us if we could do it because it was an official Power Rangers thing. And we were like, of course. And I was on the set to make sure as a Power Rangers rep, I was just there. Uh, and when we did a video game called Battle for the Grid. Hi, Kitty. My cat's here. Uh, we did a video game for Battle for the Grid. Uh, it was based on Shattered Grid, which was the comic event that he had done initially. And I hired him or I had him hired by the video game people to write that for us. And so he and I worked very closely on that um, to the point where we were doing scratch track for the characters <laughs> until we can get the voice actors to come in. And so it was just one of those things where we just became close we became good friends and uh, I think we genuinely appreciated each other and so when he left Power Rangers obviously we stayed friends when I left Power Rangers we stayed friends and he would always send me what he was working on and Radiant Black just happened to be what he was working on at the time and uh, obviously very excited for him and then just when it started to take off he was starting to think about more of a universe for Radiant Black, and he had started to pull in friends that he thought would add to this universe. And so he had Rogue Son with Ryan Parrott. That was something that Ryan had been working on, and it became part of the Massiverse. And Inferno Girl Red with Matt Groom, and uh, Radiant Red with Cherish Chen. And so he had asked me, do you want to pitch me a comic book, a story, a superhero idea? And... Just give me a give me a city and give me a superhero, and let's see if we can make it work. And so I did. And a couple a couple lunch meetings later, we developed the pitch and we got the dead lucky out of it. Well, that's it. I mean, let's let's talk about the dead lucky. I mean, you as I stated, you were kind enough to send an advanced copy through to us. You know, I thought it was awesome. I mean, I I've been loving the massive verse stuff. You know, I've been on Radiant Black from the start. Loved Rogue Sun. I think it's fantastic as well. What was cool about the Dead Lucky first issue for me was it's a hundred percent its own thing. You know, it's not just there to be. It has to link to this. It has to work. I think on its own. But at the same time, you can tell there's fun to be had there and linking it to the massive universe down the line. And and you said you were asked by by Kyle to pitch something. I mean, was this an idea you had, you know, rumbling around your head already? Or did you literally only start piecing together this story once he, he talked about maybe joining the massive verse? It was brand new. I have... Um... I've been, I've had my partner for, I've been with my partner for about 10 years now. Mm -hmm. And I've always thought the military aspect of her history was always really interesting. And I always wanted to do something creative with that. But when it came to the dead lucky, it was a story that I specifically crafted for the massive verse. I wanted a story that fit in that world that was its own thing with its own tone and its own flavor. But BB, the, really the only thing that I had rattling in my head before I started developing this story was, hey, it might be fun to do a story about a soldier one day. 
just based on Sandra's experiences and the experiences that other veterans have had. And everything else just became part of the story and things that I thought would make the story complete and special. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned the char- the main character there, Bibiana. I mean, the character herself as a survivor, you know, she's, she's come back from the war, though not fully whole, as she herself will admit. You know, she, she makes the point that she expected to be dead by 30, but now she's 33. She has survivor's guilt as well. I mean, there's there's a lot to unpack here in what is otherwise, you know, a four-color superhero book. It gives it real depth. I mean, you mentioned your partner, so that's primarily where that inspiration came from for this character then. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was... Bibiana is not Sandra, right? They're two very completely different people. But I definitely wanted to really explore what that kind of mentality is for uh, a soldier because I, I greatly admire my partner and other veterans. But I think as uh, somebody who is not a soldier, who is not a civilian, it also becomes an effort for me to understand where she is coming from and where they are coming from. And it's just fascinating for me the amount of training that they go through for these really high intense situations and they are molded and broken into these amazing soldiers in boot camp and then they have to go through these incredibly dangerous missions and they do this all with their teammates and with their platoons and then people start dying and you have all these incredible experiences uh both good and bad in the army or the armed forces whichever you're in and then all of a sudden some of them leave and you're just expected to be a civilian again and there's no transition. You're just out. And that doesn't go away. That training doesn't go away. That awareness doesn't go away. That self purpose that you are meant to be a protector and you're doing this for a greater good, it doesn't go away. And so you're kind of, I feel like could be left in limbo. And that's the feeling that I really responded to for Bibiana. I felt that that was something I really wanted to discuss and look at because it was hard for me uh, to really try and get it, to really try and understand because I have not had that experience. I have not had that life and I can call myself an an empathic as much as I want and say, oh, I absolutely understand what you're going through. At the end of the day, I don't. And so this was an opportunity for me to really try and get into that headspace and tell a story that not only respected what they went through, but also honored it in a way, uh, not through any political means. I'm not trying to tell a political story. I'm just trying to tell a story about these incredible people that have gone into the army for one reason or another, come out and are now struggling. And these are people who honestly have invisible trauma because they never talk about it or they don't really speak about it. And you just see it, how it manifests in their everyday life. And I always found that fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I like how you say there it's it's not with any sort of political agenda in mind. I mean, Bibiana's half Mexican, half Chinese, but serving in the U.S. Army. You know, she's very much a, a citizen of the world, not just a purebred American, so to speak. So I kind of like that because there's tons of representation there. And it's it's sort of indicative of the way the world, I think, is now with, you know, so many people traveling yeah. the globe and, and settling in different ways. I mean, did, did the name Bibiana, does, is there any reference there? Is that anybody you know or is it named after anyone or is it just a, a cool name you came up with? Uh, I mean, I've always liked the name. I thought the name was always pretty. Um, I wanted uh, a cultural name, a, La- a Latino name for mm-hmm. Bibi because mm-hmm. I myself am Latin and I really want 
to impart that into the things I create. But, um, and so I looked for a name that I thought made sense for this character and Bibiana means life. And I thought that made specific sense for Bibi, who is very much alive, even though she sometimes wishes she weren't. And, uh, and then I just liked that when you cut it down, it's BB. It's a short, fun, catchy name. It's unique. It's interesting. And, um, it's just fun. And I thought it really just, it made sense for that character. Yeah, that, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things I actually loved about the character and this, I'll be honest, this slightly threw me in my first read through because as I say, you were kind enough to send the issue through and you, you said, Oh, you know, it, it's not completely finished yet. So I, I wondered at first if this was a slight mistake, but as I read it more, it wasn't. And one of the things I loved was that she talks out loud to herself, you know, so I thought to myself, is this supposed to be a thought bubble, you know, the first time it came across, but where did that idea come from? I mean, it must've been tempting to sort of take the easy way out in comics and use the device of thought bubbles or narration devices like most comics. This, this made it quite unique, I thought. Yeah, I actually, um, it was absolutely intentional. And it was funny because in the script, I said it's meant to be jarring. This is meant to be a jarring moment where she just speaks out loud yeah. and she looks right at the reader. And I wanted that to be very specific because I want this to feel uncomfortable a little bit mm -hmm. because you're used to just reading a story and then you're used to just reading their narration. It's supposed to all be in their head. But with BB, it's not. And it kind of... I wanted a way to tell the audience what BB was thinking and who BB is, but she is not going to be telling that to a therapist. She's not going to be telling that to her family. She is not going to be sharing that with anybody, but the people she trusts the most. And right now that is herself. And so, um, there is a twist at the end, which I think helps explain the choice to have her talking directly at the reader. But, um, I just thought it was a nice way to do something unique in this medium that maybe a lot of people haven't done before. That wasn't just walls of like nor text and yeah. captions that, you know, people, some people do that really, really well, but you know, I come from the world of, of TV and feature films. So I wanted something that felt a little more interactive and, um, and I wanted to throw the reader off for a second. I wanted to, to have them be like, wait a minute, is she, is she looking at me? Like, was she talking to me? And then you, and then I also wanted to throw them off further being like, wait, th they can hear her talking and she's just talking to herself. It's meant to kind of play on that trope. I think a little bit of, oh, you know, the army made her weird. Veterans come back a little, a little hooey. And I think she uses that to her advantage in a way. It makes people a little uncomfortable and they just hand wave it away which I think she needs at this moment. She doesn't want to be studied so close that she has to explain herself. Yeah. Well, your your mission was definitely accomplished, as I say. It was just the first time I read it, I thought, is this meant to be a thought? Then as I read more, I you know I understood it. And so I, because it is often, a lot of comics don't break the fourth wall in an obvious way like that. I mean, obviously, you have characters like Deadpool and stuff where it's played for comedic effect. The, the closest thing I could attribute it to on my first read through, I, I don't know if you've ever read it or not, but... There was a Batman run where Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo did it. And they had this part where the pages were printed in weird ways. And you had to turn the page as you were reading it. Or turn the full comic because Batman was trapped in this maze and he was knocked off center. Mm -hmm. It was sort of like an interactive moment. And I remember a very famous story Snyder told where he said the first time he read it, he thought that DC had messed up the printing. 
and Greg Capullo, and he <laughs> ranted to Greg Capullo, oh my God, they ruined our comic, this and that, and Greg went, look at it again, Scott, in the context of the story. So it was the first time in a long time I felt that reading this, and I just thought it was such a cool touch. It was, you know, it was, as I say, a mission very much accomplished with that one. So, um, I mean, it's it's set in San Francisco as well. Any any specific reason for that? I, I understand you're a Los Angeles native. Is that correct at the moment? Yes, I'm a Los Angeles native. Um, I wanted the story to take place in a big urban city that's not unlike the city that I'm in. But I feel mm-hmm. like Los Angeles, everybody writes about Los Angeles. And I really liked San Francisco because it's a very unique city. It's a city Sandra grew up in, so I know it well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love how each district in san francisco is so unique and very coolly named there's castro and tenderloin mission hills financial chinatown they all have their own flavor they're all very easily carved up people know exactly where they're where they are where they're from and it's also very interesting what's happening in san francisco right now in terms of it's always viewed as like this this is where you can truly be yourself and free because you know the it has a huge gay community that lives in San Francisco and uh, and you have the huge China Chinese population that lives in San Francisco, but it's also very segmented and there's they're losing a lot of real estate. Like it's impossible to live there right now because it's so hard. It's so pricey because of all the tech people that mm-hmm. live there now because of Silicon Valley and when I went there, I went there a few months ago with a camera and I literally just walked the streets because I wanted to get a flavor for the city. I wanted to take pictures so I had reference for the artists so I could be like, they are in this specific spot. And it was fascinating to me how scary it could be sometimes. I wasn't used to that. I've been to San Francisco before. It wasn't like that. It felt very dystopian sometimes. You'd like walk, you go with like this beautiful ice skinny rink and this beautiful like four star hotel and Macy's right there. And then you walk a block and it's all homeless people and cops. And there was news reports where people were being like, people were leaving their trunks open because they just got so tired of their cars being broken into in downtown Mm -hmm. because there was just so much so many problems with people breaking into cars and stealing things. And it was for me the perfect setting for somebody like Bibiana because Bibiana does not know who she is at the moment. She is no longer a soldier. She's a former soldier. She doesn't know how to be a civilian. She's biracial. She's pansexual. She's coming home to a home that is no longer her home. And I wanted to displace her as much as possible but still give her a reason to fight for what she feels needs to be protected, which is her, which is Chinatown, her the town that she grew up in. And San Francisco just seemed the perfect place for all of that, especially with wanting to create a world that could, a city that could feasibly exist now had, had a tech company decided to privatize it and put all this tech in it and make it like a futuristic city that could exist now, which was the point. So it's a San Francisco that maybe might exist five years in the future, provided, you know, somebody like Google comes in and puts in all their smart technology and puts robots on the street. Yeah, I find it interesting that you use it that way because you've almost got this gang war set up uh, that's established, you know, with this tech consortium Morrow who are at odds with the Salvation Gang. I mean, 
it's an interesting one because you don't really there's a lot of shades of gray which i really like you don't really want to side with either you never want to side with a gang who think that as soon as the the tech you know protection is a way we can take over but at the same time the the tech consortium is very much infringing on your civil liberties and forcing you to pay them for protection and and then of course Bibiana caught up in the middle so it's just it it really suits what you're it really sort of nails home the point of what you're saying about San Francisco being this giant melting pot of sort of ideas mm-hmm. and you're not quite sure who the good guy is here it's uh yeah, it's a it's it's a wonderful setup, but as you say, there's 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 parts in San Francisco that have great beauty, and that leads us very much directly onto the art in the Dead Lucky, and you know it's insane. It's such a gorgeous, gorgeous book. I mean, how yeah. did how did the partnership with French Carlo Magno come about? Um, Kyle, Kyle, uh, Kyle knows amazing artists, and he has an incredible eye for talent, and. Uh, we all come from Power Rangers in one way or another, I think. Um, and French had worked on Power Rangers before, and he'd worked on Radiant Black before. And we needed somebody that was bold and interesting and could do could pull off this cyberpunky kind of world that we're aiming to do. And French just seemed like the perfect fit. And then uh, Mattia came in. Uh, he had worked in, he and I had worked together with the unleashed and he had done some other stuff. Uh, and he's just a gorgeous, gorgeous colorist. And we really wanted him to push the saturation and it has been a dream, honestly, working with all of them. Um, I rarely, if ever have to give French any notes cause he just kills it. Everything on the first try, his enthusiasm for the story is fantastic. He's very passionate about it. Uh, his designs are great. Uh, the initial suit was designed by Federico Sabatini, but French designed everything else. And it really helped the world come together in a really fun, cool way. And then the colors come in and make it pop. And then you have Michael and Becca. Michael, who's our editor, is also the editor on all the other books in the Massiverse. And Becca also letters all the other books in the Massiverse. And it brings, a, I think, a synergy to all the books where they all feel like they could live in the same universe but they're all very much their own books and that's what i really love it feels like a very special project that only we could pull off but the team that i have is amazing and i'm very lucky to have them they are great yeah i mean speaking about french's art what's what struck me and what was great about it is that he's, he's just as comfortable with sit down therapy scenes and making them visually dynamic and interesting with character emotions and so forth as he is with the carnage and the action, you know, it really is a, a beautiful book to look at. I mean, I have a, I have a slight weakness as a, as a collector for original pages from comics, and uh, I'll, I'll have to see if he's selling original pages down the line. I mean, you'd mentioned the colors there as well, Matina Iacono. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, it was simultaneously retro yet futuristic. You know, it reminded me of something like Drive, but also futuristic. You know, was, was that sort of the idea? Yeah, I think when we were looking at inspiration, it was like very arcane, very Blade Runner, very cyberpunk uh, 2077 in terms of we really wanted to push the saturation a lot. We wanted something that was because the inspiration for BB was uh, Sugar Skull for her helmet. You know, she's got a very pastel neon kind of look, which I really love. But the city itself, it's San Francisco. We want it to be bold, bold and vibrant. And make it feel like its own world and make it feel unique to the dead lucky as opposed to something like rogue sun which takes place in new orleans and has much more gothic darker field or chicago which is much more like a lot of cold blues and uh cooler tones 
it was again a very deliberate choice to make this world feel vibrant and bombastic in uh, a good way in a way that made it feel like you're not going to see a book like this somewhere else um this is a world that exists in san francisco this is bb's world and you're not going to see bb's world in any other book yeah, I mean, I, I have to ask, obviously, we're talking about the massive verse a lot and just the, the amount of possibilities there. Is there is there a plan point in the series for a crossover with Radiant Black or Rogue Sun, or do we just have to sit tight and sort of wait for the surprise element, I suppose? I would say let's wait and see. What I will say is that, and this is something that the guys and I have talked about to an extent, um, I would love eventually for them to cross over. I mean, that's the whole, there's obviously, that's the point of being in the same universe, right, to eventually have people have connections. But um, what we don't want, and I think we all agree, and uh, they will correct me if I'm speaking out of turn, we don't want uh, like a DC Dark Crisis event where you have to buy 20 different Mm -hmm. single issues to understand what's going on in an event. Uh, We want to make sure that if you buy the Dead Lucky and you buy the trades for Dead Lucky, you will understand those stories. You don't have to go and read Rogue Sun or Radiant Black Mm -hmm. to do that. Now, little bits and pieces, you will absolutely see. They all live in the same world, so sometimes they play with the same chess pieces. Like, for example, Moro. Um, Kyle did did a comic book called Shift for the Image Anthology, and you see them referencing Moro quite a bit in that anthology. And so Moro exists in the larger world. So you'll see Moro pop up and then you don't, you might ever see, sometimes maybe you'll see a crossover. Like one of our, my characters will go to New Orleans one day, but you're not going to have to read the dead lucky to understand why she's there. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I mean, and again, I, I don't know if that will ever happen, but that's the goal. I think we want to make sure that if you pick up the dead lucky and you don't read rogues on, you're not going to want to kill yourself because now you have to read two comic books. We want you to want to read all of them because they're all amazing books. But if, you know, for example, you read rogue Sun, but also pick up dead lucky and dead lucky is not for you. If you still keep reading rogue Sun, great. Yeah. We want to make sure we're all our own. Cre- we all have our own creative teams and we want to make sure that those feel clean. Yeah, I think that's definitely very important. As you say, the books do feel very distinct. I just, uh, again, it just, I think it comes down to the quality of the books. That's why I would, I would certainly look forward to uh, some sort of crossover event at some point. Because as you say, that's sort of one of the, the positives about setting it in the same universe that any, anything like that could happen. But with regards to the Dead Lucky itself, I mean, in an ideal world, how long would you plan to work in this series? Do you have a a set or preferred length in mind? Obviously, everything's dependent on sales numbers and, you know, success and, you know, finding an audience. But in an ideal world, do you have a set or preferred length in mind? Um. I want to keep going as much as I can. I mean, I have, let's say right now, a year mm-hmm. pretty settled in terms of where I want this book to go. Uh, I have six issues completely beaded out, ready to go. I think it really all depends on how the book sells. And I really want it to do well because the more it sells, the more I get to do. Um, I would. Lo- I feel like BB's story would take a year to really for me to feel satisfied with her journey. Uh, but if I have to do it in six, I'll do it in six. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense. How, how does that work into your writing? style? I know different writers have different sort of styles. I mean, do you map out the beginning and the end and then it's just all about the journey, how to get from point A to B, or is it just a case of see where the character takes you? And then, you know, th- w- would you have like a specific ending in mind when you, when you started out? 
or a specific place maybe you would like to leave BB I suppose would probably probably be the better way to to, to say it um I think at the end of the day BB is gonna have to address her trauma and uh, have to figure out how to move on past the grief of her trauma she's a long way from that uh, I think right now she is trying to find ways to actively avoid it and avoid dealing with it and so I think it's might take very well take years for her to get to that point. But I think to the point where she can truly open up, have a relationship, move on past her grief and really truly say goodbye to the platoon that she lost. That is when I think she could, we could say goodbye to BB and feel okay about it. It's interesting. Just before we, we started recording, I, I spoke to you very quickly about, you know, the previews book and how important a tool that is in the comic industry for stores, for creators, you don't want to show your hand too much, but you want to tease just enough to get people interested. As I say, we, we recommend titles in the store based on different things. So, you know, we have a previews board. We had the Dead Lucky on there. Now, one of the reasons... Yes, I thank put, you for that. That was very cool. Oh, it's all. I mean, it's... Again, it's a way of getting the information out there because there's so many titles every month, you know, so you have to sort of... And, and no one has that infinite amount of income where they can just get everything. So you got to just try and guide people in the right direction. So there's there's different things that we certainly look for. I mean, there's publisher image or just knocking it out of the park with nearly everything, although that's true of Boom Comics as well and, and a few other publishers. We always look at creators. Obviously, this was part of the massive verse, but one thing that really caught my eye was in the previous book that the dead lucky was described as deadly class meets radiant black. Mm -hmm. I have to ask now you've worked in all facets of, of comics and, and media and so forth. Did you write that or did someone else write that? Uh, somebody else wrote that. That was not me. I was going to ask. Do I you, don't disagree with it. I was going to say, do you think it's a fair <laughs> summation? I think it's fair. I, when I pitched that I pitched, I think, what did I, what did I pitched? I pitched Robocop meets uh, arcane meets, Blade Runner meets Iron Giant. That's what I pitched. And those are all very old, so I'm sure <laughs> they went much more contemporary. <laughs> Don't worry, you're speaking my language very much with that when you start talking about <laughs> Fearhoven and Robocop and so forth. I mean, I mean, the, the, just the, the main reason I ask is just Deadly Classes, you know, it's well known in store. It's one of my absolute favorite titles of all time. You know, I'm, I'm still not over the amazing TV adaptation. I'll get more time. But what elements in the Dead Lucky do you think are there any elements in it that are, are inspired by that series? Because it, it just seemed very specific. You know, Deadly Class to me is, I wouldn't compare it to a lot of comics. You know, it is very, it is quite unique. But I just wondered if there was any elements in the Dead Lucky that, you know, were maybe inspired or quite similar to, to Deadly Class. I'm going to be, I'm going to fully admit this. I went and bought the Deadly Class trade as soon as I saw that they compared it to <laughs> the Dead Lucky. So it is sitting in my to read pile. I have it. I'm. I just have been too busy to read it. But I got very excited when I saw that comparison, and I can't say I know. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, it wasn't me that wrote that comparison. But um, hearing you say that makes me excited to read the book, and I can only hope I live up to the hype. And I probably will read it this weekend now because that feels very embarrassing to have that question <laughs> asked. I should have anticipated that. It, it is interesting just to see it because that's the thing. They, they always do it with the image in the previous book, but they don't do it with other, other publishers. They'll always say, if you liked the world building of Saga and the family drama of this title, you'll love this. And I was just always curious yeah. if it was creators or if that was just more PR guys or, you know, that kind of thing coming up with it. So, uh, I mean, there's, there's definitely a marketing team that, that puts things together and 
the the nice thing about it is that they read the pitches, they read all the materials. So mm-hmm. if they make those promises to retailers, it's usually with good reason. Yeah. Um, it's usually just they just do it as shorthand for if you like this, you'll like that. It's just a way for them to people to wrap their heads around what kind of book it is, especially something like Dead Lucky, which feels I think different than Rogue Sun and Radiant Black in terms of the themes mm-hmm. and what it's tackling. Yeah. Well. Jump into Deadly Class as soon as you get five minutes because you're you're. Jumping. I literally, I have it. I have the trade. <laughs> I think it's actually right there. I like. I have the trade ready to read because I I saw that and I saw your tweet about it and I'm like I have to read this book, <laughs> so I understand exactly what what they're talking yeah, about. You're, you're jumping in at a good time. There's only three issues of it to go, so you'll have a, a complete story to to jump in with that. So, but yeah, yeah so I'm a trade reader. So yeah. like, yeah. I, well, I only have so much room. Mm-hmm. And I used to read Comixology, uh, but then Amazon took it over and it just became a beast to try and figure out. So I kind of <laughs> took a break on that. And so now I'm, I go to in-stock trades or I will go into my local comic book shop and buy the trades. And then I just, when I have time, just blast through them just because uh, I have a lot of projects in the air and it kind of makes reading difficult during the week. Yeah, it's the interesting thing about the comic industry that makes it completely unique i think is that i would say 50 per, maybe about 70 percent of our customers are single issue guys um 30 percent are trade readers but without the single issue readers trades won't get released but some people like exactly stories but some people like the the cliffhanger and it's, it, it's such a vicious circle the comic industry i read a bit of both you know it's you know i love what brubaker and phillips are doing at image with you know releasing complete graphic novels but I have to admit, I'm a I'm a single issue guy as well. But then, as I, you say, space becomes an issue. I freaking love single issues. I just don't know where to put them. <laughs> it's ridiculous. When I had Power Rangers, they gave me comps, and I was with Power Rangers for five years. And I just like I boxes upon boxes. My girlfriend was going to kill me. And so, and now, and then I used to have like a pull list of twenty titles every month, mm-hmm. and I just never knew where to put them. I they were just piling up, and then I would lose them. So I wouldn't be able to read them or I'd read them out of order because I'm like, okay, I have four. Did I get five? And because I stopped my pool list because I'm like, if I I like just I'm just going to get the ones. And so it still doesn't stop me from going to a comic book store and coming back with 10 books or 10 single issues because I just like the art or I'm just like, no, I really like Nice House on the Lake. I could read Nice House on the Lake on the app, mm-hmm. but I still want to get every issue because it's just so good yeah. that I don't want to stop. Re- I don't want to wait. <laughs> so. Great it depends. Int- I think it also depends on the on the book and the title, but yeah, mm-hmm. I totally get what you mean. I used to be a single issue person until space became an issue, and then I just had to give it up for most of my titles. See, at that point, what you need to do is follow my advice and just open up a store because then you have a storeroom you can store your private collection in. Uh, that's the only way around that I could find, to be completely honest with you. But great I mean, name, great name smart. checking, great name checking on Nice House and Lake. Though. That is a thoroughly, thoroughly that is wonderful very cool, title. By the way, though. Uh, that you have a store is very cool. Yeah, we just passed five years open, so it's uh, it's it's not going too bad. Congratulations! Thank you very much. That's amazing. Do you guys also do collectibles, or is it just uh, comics? A little bit of everything. Yeah, we do merchandise, uh, graphic novels, omnibuses, statues. We send stuff off for grading for people, but we have a we have a sit-in part, so we're sort of semi coffee shop as well. But it's just about building community and you know people hanging out and chatting nonsense about pop culture and comics and movies and oh my gosh. that kind of thing. You so, guys are located 
not in America though, so it's not like I could go. Yeah, I think I, I think I need to franchise out, you know. But I have a I have a little one on the way for the first time within the next two weeks. Oh, congratulations! So, yeah, I think my time will be busy for the next little while anyway. But oh, then... that's big news! Congratulations! I appreciate that's that. great. Thank you very much. But uh, but yeah, no, we'll we'll finish off on the dead lucky then. So just a, a final sort of word on it, you know. Tell our listeners why they should not be missing out on this title when it is released on August third. I think this book is a superhero book that you're going to have a lot of fun reading. Uh, I've been empowering just for 10 years. I know how to make superheroes fun, but I also think this is a book that uh, is grounded in themes much deeper than that. And I hope if you have PTSD or survival guilt, this book will help you feel a little less alone. That's what this book is for. Awesome. So, I mean, now that you've been fully bitten by the comic writing bug, are there any other ideas rattling around your head that we may see in the future? Or is your focus 100% on the dead lucky? Oh, I mean, I am absolutely just trying to get through the dead lucky right now. But that doesn't mean I'm not working on other projects. <laughs> I would say by San Diego Comic Con, you'll get a you've got a look at some of the other stuff that's coming out from me. And I'm very excited about that. I take it you're obviously you'll have a presence at San Diego Comic Con. Yes, I'm excited to be there. I'm going to be at San Diego Comic Con this year, and I am also going to be at C2E2, which is the Chicago convention this year, as well as a podcast convention in Dallas in August, which is going to be a first for me. So it'll be fun. Are you just looking forward to getting back to the convention scene, obviously after the stop-start nature of the no. world for the last couple of years, or are you secretly dreading it? I'm terrified. I was I just tried to see if I could get boosted in there. Like, no, you've already got yours. So I I'm excited to see everybody. I'm excited to talk about the projects that I'm doing, especially the Dead Lucky. I am also I've never gotten COVID. And I know if I'm going to get it, that is where. And so I'm a little nervous about that. But I am absolutely excited to be with the fans again. I haven't missed I, I've been at every Comic Con the past five years except for the ones that didn't happen because of COVID. So it'll be like coming home. It'll be fun. It's just the first time I'm not there for Power Rangers. Yeah, that in itself must be exciting. As I say, it's that whole creator-owned aspect and having full autonomy over your, your storytelling choices, maybe not having to put it through committee. It's It just must be exceptionally freeing, you know? It's great. I think what's also really fun about this is that I'm still very much working with the team. It's just a smaller team, and it's these teammates happen to be my friends uh kyle still consults on every book i mean i just was texting him with him right now <laughs> he uh he's as invested in this book as i am michael gives me a thousand notes and i'm grateful for every single one because he definitely sees the forest while i'm stuck in the trees and helps me make every book better i mean this book would not be what it is were it not for their creative input and their consulting on it so um i'm very grateful i I would never want final say or complete ownership uh, where it's just me for anything because I feel like uh, more minds make you better because other people have different experiences and different talents and they're going to see things that you necessarily don't. I think the true skill of any writer is the ability to listen to other people and take notes. I think that's the true mark of success. If you're if you know how to take notes in an interesting way, if you know how to push back in a respectful way, but also sometimes just bite the bullet and take the note and still have that piece of the story that you're proud of, especially when you're working for licensees and people that are paying you to do the work. 
Oh, it's awesome to hear that because I think it's one of the most collaborative industries in the world is comics because without a writer, you can't have a title. Without an artist, without a colorist, without an editor, without a letterer, without cover artists, without publishers, you know, it's a very, very collaborative medium and, you know, it's it's one of my favorite things about it, you know, so. Um, I agree. But yeah, you know, we you've, you've been exceptionally generous with your time. I mean, we... We always do finish off with our same question, uh, which I like to pose to creators. I know you said you came to comic books maybe a little bit later than, than some people. You didn't really grow up with them. But we always like to ask, what is your favorite, if if you have one, of course, a favorite DC series of all time, a favorite Marvel series of all time, and a favorite independent series? Is there anything that comes to mind on those three? I think for DC, I'm going to say Injustice, because that's the series that I've made me fall in love with that year one and two from Tom Taylor just mm-hmm. made me fall in love with comics and the stories that could be told. The other one I've been really impressed with recently that I just got discovered because Kyle recommended it to me was Gotham Central. I had never read that before. I'm so I got the taste. omnibus that just came out. <laughs> Freaking love it. I, I can't get enough of that series and I'm so excited to finally dig into the whole thing for Marvel. Um, I'm, I mean, again, I, I, I hate to be the, I'm probably not the only Tom Taylor stand, but Wolverine, I freaking loved his Wolverine run. It was just so fun and so interesting and different. And, um, spider Gwen had a really cool one. The Loki presidential run was really fun for me when he was running for president for the Indies. The one that I really freaking loved that I don't see get talked about enough is velvet. Velvet oh, was great amazing. Yeah, I was obsessed with Velvet when it came out, and again, I have the hardcover, the hardcover omnibus. I'm sitting on my shelf because I just freaking loved it. It was such a unique story and such a unique protagonist, and the way it was told and the art, it just all came together beautifully. Yeah, some I freaking loved it. Some wonderful choices there, Velvet. I I wholeheartedly agree. I. I collected all the single issues at the time. It was Ed Brubaker writing, of course, and Steve Epting on art, but I still couldn't resist that glorious hardcover when it came out because it's just a thing of beauty. But I was almost expecting you to say Seven Secrets just so you could have a trilogy of Tom Taylor's there. <laughs> I thought it would have been good. <laughs> I, I mean, I loved Seven Secrets. I think Boom Studios has done a fantastic job with it, and Daniele and Tom are amazing. But um, no, I'm, I'm going to go with Velvet. I'm going to stick to my guns. The Once in Future by uh from boom is amazing too yeah karen gillen Don really Mora, another great one and something's killing the children boom just like has some amazing artists and then i just read motor crush which i really liked i thought it was really interesting yeah. uh really unique and fun from image which lot, was cool a lot of great choices there as i say i think it's just it's a golden period i think at the moment for independent comics i've i say it in store all the time it reminds me a little bit of the vertigo boom of you know the late 90s and 2000s you know the the creative energy coming out the variety of titles the quality of titles image are nailing it boom are nailing it awa studios is a new one coming out i like a lot of their stuff so yeah i think i like to say to people comics is the best industry in the world a because i think it's one of the most inclusive industries in the world but b there's a comic for everybody uh you know i always say to people when they come in what movie do you like i'll find a comic for you so all these people think it's just superheroes beating each other over the heads. There's much more to it than that. So, Oh, no, that's what I love about independence. You don't, I mean, Stray Dogs is just <laughs> yeah, great. so unique and interesting. Yeah, great fun. And it just, yeah, like it's, it, for me, that's where truly you get the best stories told. Because if you go with TV or features, um, you have to find financing and millions and millions of dollars and a network or distribution company that believes that they could make a profit off of this stuff. But Mm -hmm. with comics, the profit margin is much lower, which means there's a lot more freedom 
to be able to do these really cool, unique stories that you're not going to see anywhere else. And I think it says something now because now all the TV and feature people are looking at the comics industry trying to take all that IP to create TV shows with them. Yeah, as if there's not enough content out there right now. I, I can't keep up with it as it is. Oh, but yeah, I mean, as a former executive, we're lazy. If you already have an IP that has an established audience that you can point to and say people really like, it's much easier to sell and create a show than trying to create something yourself. <laughs> and there's your unique insight into the industry uh, to finish off. So, yeah. God, yeah, I sound like an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Not at all. But yeah, as I say, you've been exceptionally generous with your time. That's that's going to do it for us today. So thank you once again to the amazing Melissa Flores for joining us today. It's 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 been a pleasure chatting to you. Make sure to get your pre-orders into the store for that August 3rd release. We've plenty of copies ordered uh, of The Dead Lucky. As I say, most people trust my taste who listen to this podcast. Believe me when I say it's one of the best number ones this year. I think you're going to really, really dig it. So uh, you will not want to miss out. So uh, again, thank you for your time. And uh, hopefully I'll catch up with you some ways down the road. Thank you so much.